On today's episode, we discuss the epidemics of reflux and post-nasal drip with laryngologist Dr. Matthew Clary, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Clary went to medical school at The Ohio State, rival institution of his wife's alma mater, then started his otolaryngology residency at George Washington, which is where I met him. I was at Georgetown at the time. After two years, he defected and transferred to Thomas Jefferson University, now the Sidney Kimmel Medical College, and then did his laryngology fellowship at UCSF. Dr. Clary and I discuss laryngopharyngeal reflux and postnasal drip and other conditions one should be considering if your patient has one of these but doesn't seem to be improving. We discuss common misconceptions about these conditions and how many patients with complaints like globus, throat clearing, and throat mucus may actually have a voice disorder. He gives us recommendations for some simple exercises that might help, and we end with some advice for professional voice users like us physicians who, like it or not, are professional voice users because we speak to our patients all day long. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Matthew Clary, thank you so much for being with us today on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Thanks, Brad, for the invite. So first, I'm a general ear, nose, and throat doctor, whereas you are a fellowship-trained laryngologist. I think for the med students and maybe some of the general practice physicians out there, ear, nose, and throat seems like a pretty narrow field, yet you decided between the ear, the nose, and the throat, you know what, I'm just going to stick to the throat. So one, how did you arrive at that decision? And two, what the heck does a laryngologist do? What do you see? What do you treat? Well, what I usually tell people is that ear, nose, and throat was too complicated for me, and I was in the remedial program, and so I just stuck with just the throat because I couldn't handle all three. So that's how I chose laryngology. But um, Overall, laryngology is essentially doctors who treat just voice, airway, and swallowing disorders. So if you can't talk, you can't breathe, or you can't eat your food, I'm your guy. Fantastic. So if you, you're in an academic program, so I'm sure you have med students and, and residents rotating through with you all the time. If you have a med student with you and you didn't know what specialty they were going into, Name one or two things that you'd want them to take away, the types of things that every doctor should know. Probably the most important thing is just uh, when people talk about laryngology or voice airway and swallowing disorders, it sounds kind of boring. You're just like, what? Voice airway or breathing, swallowing, it's not that important. And I always tell them, you know, it's really not that important. It's, It's stuff that people don't think about until they have an issue. And then all of a sudden they realize how important it is. So that's usually kind of the the first thing that I try to communicate to them is how important it is. If you can't communicate with people, if you can't breathe and you can't sit down and have a meal with your friends, that's a, it's a huge quality of life issue. So that's probably the the first thing. The second thing is usually related to, to reflux. Generally the patients have, or the 
students have multiple questions related to reflux, ask me, was this caused by reflux? What medications that you, do you use? And I usually try to articulate to them that a lot of what they've learned in med school is, is perhaps incorrect and that uh, GERD or laryngopharyngeal reflux plays a much less significant uh, role in disease processes, at least of the head and neck. And we usually kind of joke that uh, in general, we're taught that reflux causes everything, including global warming. <laughs> so I, I, my, my theory behind that, the whole reflux epidemic that we're seeing is Globus is a, is a pretty common phenomenon. So for people that don't know what globus is, globus is just the sensation that, that you have a lump in your throat or you feel like you have something stuck in your throat when you don't actually have something stuck in your throat. And so for decades, we were telling people that it was post-nasal drip because maybe every so often you'd see someone with chronic nasopharyngitis or a sphenoid sinus infection, and that mucus you could see dripping down the back of their throat. And so for the one in 100 patients or fewer that actually has that causing their globus, it was that was actually the diagnosis. So now we're telling everybody that they have postnasal drip. And then suddenly someone discovers that in some patients, reflux is is the cause. And so now it swings in the other direction. Now we're getting away from postnasal drip, although we've left behind this residue of public opinion where people think that postnasal drip is a phenomenon and a pathology in, unto itself. And now reflux is taking over all of those patients that have these nebulous symptoms that we're not, we're having trouble figuring out what's going on. And so what you're saying is that the pendulum is now swinging even further. And now we're getting away from reflux as that that wastebasket diagnosis. I mean, I would completely agree with that. I mean, you, I think you you saw that the the GI doctors were probably the first to start uh, casting a little doubt uh, on kind of refluxes the the causative factor for all things throat related, and then slowly you saw academic laryngologist first, and then it's kind of propagated from there. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality of it is that, and I usually tell people this, is that we all have reflux to some degree, right? Some people more than others. But the the challenge is trying to figure out when it's it's pathologic, when it's actually causing problems, and I, I just I think it's a, it's really important to to use a little bit of common sense when trying to to pin down whether that's the big factor. I mean, the biggest thing is what are the symptoms for reflux? And the reality of it is is that there are three symptoms heartburn, regurgitation, and belching that are most consistent with reflux. All the other stuff is, is essentially hearsay. You know, we actually did a study, UCSF, where we uh, had patients that had voice disorders and we had them complete a, the reflux symptoms index. And we literally had them fill this out before and then after they underwent voice therapy for their voice disorder. And interestingly, they actually, based on this questionnaire that supposedly was reflux symptoms, they actually had improvement in their reflux based on that, that scoring index. And when we looked at this, what we found was the only questions on that index that actually didn't change with, with voice therapy alone were essentially the ones that were heartburn, regurgitation, and belching. So a what that tells us is that a lot of the symptoms that we blame on reflux really are something else or likely something else. So what are the, uh, what are the common something else's that you see? As a general rule, 
Globus, when we talk about Globus specifically, Globus is attributed to lots of different things. I mean, there's, I think there was a period of time where we worried about reflux, then we were worried about cancer. And uh, interestingly, there's a very funny journal article that was published out of the UK. And literally the title of the, the article was Globus does not cause reflux. And they went through their whole study looking at kind of objective testing and sh- basically show that in their study that Globus was not caused by reflux, um, or at least did not have a higher preponderance or prevalence in patients with reflux. But there's lots of different stuff. Usually, the the most common kind of causes of reflux in the patients that we see, it's related to kind of increased muscular tension in the muscles, the anterior muscles of their neck, and banging of like their vocal folds together, and they get this whole process of where their the nerve endings in their their larynx are kind of hypersensitized and they feel this lump sensation in their throat and they feel uh, this irritation in their throat. Sometimes they'll they'll feel even kind of like uh, burning or kind of like a scratchy sensation to their throat. And it's usually related to working harder to produce voice. So my my thought behind that is we, because we see a lot of globus, right? There's, Mm -hmm. there's a ton of that in private practice. And when we can't figure it out, we send them to guys like you, who then I'm sure see even, even more of that specific sensation. The way that I understand it is human beings are tribal animals, right? Like we're, we're designed to communicate with each other. And actually the vocal, the vocal folds originally were designed to prevent aspiration, not for communication. And then they got more finely tuned for communication. But we haven't evolved to be able to lecture all day long, right? Like Absolutely. You and I, we speak to patients all day long. And so the fact that we don't, we aren't, well, you are, but I'm not trained to use my voice optimally, how I don't end every day feeling hoarse and sore and a lump sensation is, um, I, th- I think... It's incredible that that I don't, but it doesn't surprise me when people do because it just it just wasn't designed to work at that capacity. Well, I mean, absolutely, and I mean, I always kind of like joke with patients, you know, that uh, exactly what you said, which is, you know, we were, were our lifespan and kind of the the marvels of modern medicine allow us to live longer in a more rapid time than evolution has allowed us to kind of change. And I always kind of joke that a lot of the age related voice disorders didn't bother us 300, 400 years ago, 300, 400 years ago, because we were getting knocked off by cheetahs before any of these problems ever became an issue. They were still an issue for those people, but they just didn't live long enough. And so by virtue of the fact that we do live that long, now we're able to to worry about things like kind of mucus sensation and throat clearing and, and uh, kind of like decreased voice that's related to age change or aging. Yeah. If you're spending your day being worried about where your next meal is and getting mauled by a bear, Globus <laughs> is going to be the last thing on your mind. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually, I, I went to a lecture by your mentor, Dr. Mark Corey, a couple of years ago, where he spoke about all of the different things that sometimes get that he sees where the patient was initially diagnosed with reflux, they didn't get better. And then what ultimately was the diagnosis. And it was interesting because at the end of the talk, almost all of the questions started with, yes, but when it is reflux, how do you manage it? What do you do? Like it was, it was just interesting that, that you can kind of get stuck with this, this cognitive bias that, that these, you know, because your, your patient's 
Because a lot of times the patients get better. I mean, you were the one you were the one who told me Voltaire's famous quote. <laughs> from my mentor. That's right. Really from him? <laughs> yes. I heard tell, that tell way, way too many times during fellowship to forget it. <laughs> well, why don't you share it with the audience? The quote from Voltaire is, medicine is the art of entertaining the patient while nature takes its course. Beautiful. Which is a, a very, very cynical, cynical commentary on our medical profession. Well, if I take my car to a, not to take anything away from our profession, right? Because listen, we, we, we work very hard and we're standing on the shoulders of giants that have done, you know, sacrificed their lives and done tons of research. But, but if I take my car to a mechanic and they don't fix it properly, it's still broken. Whereas the body has a tendency to heal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then the reality of it is the human body is far more complex than an automobile, you know, I mean, the reality is we don't understand everything in the human body and our knowledge is continually evolving and we think we've got a certain thing figured out and then we wait a few years and then realize we were wrong. And, and I think that's a lot of, of the problem with kind of when we approach patients and their care. And I mean, I personally try to, to have that humility when I'm approaching patients to recognize that I don't know everything and that, you know, we're still trying to come up with answers and, and make sure that the patients are aware of that too. So we're definitely going to get back to reflux because it's, it's really hard to get away from it in, in this type of conversation. But, but let's go back to our original line of questioning. So initially you had a med student with you. So you wanted to, so we talked about what you would, you would teach them, but now you have a med student who you know is going to be a referring physician, right? So they're going into a specialty, either primary care, or pulmonology, that's, it's not otolaryngology, but you know, they're going to be in your area and sending you patients. Sure. So, so what is something that you would want them to take away from a rotation with you? You know, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, is that when the patient first comes to you for whatever it is, whether it's, it's voice changes or throat clearing or globus, it's okay to watch them for a few weeks. Things go get better, just like we were just talking about. Things get better on their own after two, four weeks. But, you know, if the patient continues to have these throat complaints, you know, for six weeks or longer, you know, there's kind of the true definition of chronic. And especially if they have a history of, you know, significant smoking or, or other risk factors, they probably need to be seen by an otolaryngologist. I mean, don't just dismiss it away. That's probably the biggest thing. And so that's probably the first thing. And then the second thing is, and you, you hear this all the time, oftentimes I'll have patients uh, or sorry, physicians come, come observe or I'm, have a phone conversation and they always say, one otolaryngologist uh, saw reflux symptoms in their throat. Everybody's always fixated on reflux and these reflux changes that we see in the larynx. And I always kind of say it's, it's largely a myth. The reality of it is there were uh, two really good studies done uh, previously where they took fellowship trained otolaryngologists and had them evaluate the endoscopic exam of the larynx and had them score the appearance based on what the typical findings of reflux are. And that's usually kind of classically redness of the vocal folds, thickening of like the, the skin between the arytenoids and then mucus. So they had these patients or these doctors evaluate in a blinded fashion 
all these these examinations. And so the funny thing about the data is not only did the doctors not agree with each other, but then when they were shown the same examinations and a, a second time, they didn't even agree with themselves. So it really, I think, calls into question a lot of like what we're, we see on a daily basis in, in patient notes um, and what we think we're seeing ourselves when we, when we scope these patients as ENTs. And there was even a second second study that kind of followed up on that one. They said, well, maybe we just didn't uh, assess whether the patients actually had reflux. And so what they did was they actually used pH testing and then found that, once again, there was actually no correlation between reflux and the appearance on the, the exam. So it's just it's very interesting. What we see isn't always what is actually going on. Oh, yeah. We can convince ourselves pretty easily if we that we see something. Also, you might be seeing something. You might be seeing some redness in the arytenoids because <laughs> <laughs> the patient's doing that because they feel like something's stuck in their throat, right? You do that enough. Of course. Pretty red. Of course, right? I mean, it absolutely can be phonotrauma or it can be the guy or girl who talks all day as a physician uh, to patients and you're just constantly banging those, those cartilages together. Of course, they could be red from just that alone. So, but it, it's just, it's funny because you see as a, a tertiary specialist, you see all these other physician notes about how they saw all these reflux changes. And then, you know, half the time you spend a good portion of your visit trying to convince the patient that they may not actually have reflux and you need to get some objective test to, to prove or disprove. Yeah, I mean, I, I I see patients all the time for ear problems, and you know, it's 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 a tough conversation to have sometimes when they've been told that they have ear infection after ear infection, and then you see them and they have, you know, a completely normal ear, completely normal hearing, and they have point tenderness over their TMJ and signs of bruxism on their teeth. So the the it's a very, very common diagnosis. It's actually, I think it's the most common cause of ear pain when the ear exam is normal. Mm -hmm. And so now they've been, they've got this idea now because they've been told multiple times that they've got this pathology. And now you're telling them that it's in fact something completely different. So it, it makes it a, a difficult conversation. It does. I mean, it's not only difficult from the standpoint that you're trying to hopefully convince the patient that there was a reason probably why they didn't respond to their previous treatment. But then also, I mean, you know, the reality, we need to, let, we'll go back to the reflux thing. I mean, even during my residency, it was so ingrained in our training that reflux caused everything. And so it's, you know, I don't fault any physician realistically, especially like general otolaryngologists where they aren't specialized in just the throat, but I definitely don't fault physicians for thinking that it's reflux because it's so pervasive in all of our textbooks and all of our training and everything else. So let's actually pivot a little bit, I think, back to the to what the general practitioner sees, because we see the same thing with this idea of post-nasal drip, right? Sure. This is something as a general INT that I, I see a lot of. Patient comes in, they're told that their diagnosis is post-nasal drip. And just to recap, physiologically, your nose and mouth produce, what, a liter to a liter and a half of mucus a day. It drips down the back of your throat and you swallow it. So if you throw a sinus infection or allergies on top of it, you're really not increasing the amount of mucus that much. Now, what I was taught in medical school 
was the five most common reasons for cough are smoking, post-nasal drip, reflux, and then two other things that I can't remember right now. Asthma, asthma. Asthma, right, <laughs> of course, asthma. Right, thank you, thank you. Um, and, and, and so we're, we were told in medical school that post-nasal drip is one of the most common causes of cough. Yet, as an otolaryngologist, I know post-nasal drip is a symptom, not a diagnosis. And, but but this, is, this is what we were taught, right? And so right. you certainly can't fault anyone for, for thinking this way, especially when they're responsible for knowing everything about everything, right? right. Family practice, internal medicine, pediatrics, they have to know everything. We just, I just have to know the ear, nose, and throat. You just need to know the throat. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, so certainly. But post-nasal drip is something that really bothers me because it's such a, like, I guess like a, it's a pop culture phenomenon because people will come in and, and among their other litany of symptoms, they kind of gloss over this. They'll say, well, of course, because of, I have post-nasal drip and then they'll just kind of move on. And, and, you know, we have to pick and choose when we decide to just say, actually, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but, and then you go into the, the whole physiology. If it's, it's, I think if it's ultimately going to change their diagnosis, it's important to, to clarify that. Sure. But I think we see the same the same problems with reflux that we see with with post nasal drip is yeah, but you but Brad like you, it makes sense though like from a patient standpoint I mean that you're like oh I have this mucus sensation in my throat it has to be it's not coming out of the front of my nose so it's got to be post nasal drip and what's interesting is that. I think it's just one of those things where people are familiar with blowing stuff out of their nose, right? So they know that the nose makes mucus, but I don't think that your your average person realizes that like mucus is like produced basically from like your nose all the way down into your lungs and that there are other places where, you know, not only can mucus be created, but also just those sensations can come from. And I think that's what what's challenging about it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, the more we can communicate that to our referring physicians, the more they can be reiterating this this message for those patients that come in with these complaints, I think the better off we'll be. Hence the idea for this podcast, right? Educate getting getting super specialists like you to communicate to the rest of us what you know so it can it can help us to educate our patients and, and better serve our patients. Right. No, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I would say, I mean, the post-nasal thing is just, it's to some degree is, I guess, like the bane of my existence, just because you, you, it's so widespread. But, you know, it is interesting, you know, I've kind of, you know, I see a lot of these patients that have kind of this throat clearing or cough that's believed to be related to post-nasal drip. And it's it's pretty interesting because a few years ago, I started specifically asking patients, I'm like, now where are you actually feeling the sensation of mucus? Like, Do you actually feel mucus dripping kind of around the back of your soft palate where you know your uvula is, and then it comes down? Or do you just feel a sensation of mucus like right here at the level of kind of like your Adam's apple or your larynx. And it's very, very interesting to me that when you ask that very kind of specific questioning, by and large, most patients will say, I just, they think about it for a second because they've never been asked it before. And then they're like, 
yeah, you know what? It's just in my throat. And so when you ask kind of like ask that the question in that way, I think it helps to elucidate where in a lot of these patients, especially in the absence of actual kind of like runny nose, allergic rhinitis, significant sinus disease. I mean, it helps you to narrow down where the actual problem likely is. Oh, yeah. And it helps them. I think that helps to get them on the same page, because once you eliminate all the nasal complaints and you're left with this sensation of mucus in the throat, then you can help them to really narrow down their thinking into actually what you're having. So if I've got this right, you actually don't have any nose complaints. You just have a throat complaint. So it sounds to me like you have a throat problem, not a nose problem. So we shouldn't, we got to get you off the nose sprays. We'll get you off the antibiotics, stop taking Sudafed. And actually something that, that I see for Globus is xerostomia. Xerostomia, and, and you please correct me if I'm wrong, two of the most common times that I see patients with a presumed diagnosis of reflux, it's presbylarynx and xerostomia. So if they're xerostomia, then the mucus that they're making, and I don't know how this an- analogy plays with, with some people, but I, I make the analogy to like to cooking. You're making a sauce, you turn it into a reduction. You get rid of some of the, <laughs> some of the watery content, and now it's thicker. Right. Now imagine right. instead of the watery stuff dripping down the back of your throat and swallowing it, now it's a lot more viscous. You're really going to feel that. So xerostomia, either primary or as a, as a side effect of their medication or from Sjogren's sure. syndrome. And then the other thing is presbylarynx, right? You've got someone yeah. whose vocal cords are loose because they're, they're an octogenarian. So then they've got to put much more squeeze on it to, to get them together. And so now their voice is, is sounding like this. And of course, you're going to feel like there's mucus in your throat. And, and so that, those are, those are two of the, the common ones that I see. I like it. You're, I like hearing somebody else do the old man voice uh, <laughs> because all my residents make fun of all the quote unquote voices that I do during my typical clinic. So it's, it's nice to be on the other side. So <laughs> I think it's important, you know, when I'm demonstrating that to the patient, right. When I say, you know, if I use my voice like this, doesn't it sound like I have mucus in my, you know, and they're like, Oh yeah. You know, that, 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 that makes a whole, a whole lot more sense. It does. It does. But then you start having problems yourself. <laughs> exactly. Now I'm going to start, start needing some, to, some speech therapy. That's right. <laughs> so b- before we're, we're going to move on in a little bit to some voice recommendations that you might have for, for our fellow physicians, right? Because we are professional voice users, whether we like it or not, or think of ourselves that way or not. We talk all day, ideally listen more than talk, but still, you see 30 patients in a day, 20 patients in a day, 40 patients in a day, however many patients you might see, you are talking. It's a lot of talking. A lot. So a lot of the next, in, in a second, we're going to get to your, your voice recommendations for us. But before we move on to that, is there anything else that you think is, is worthwhile to discuss with regards to postnasal drip, reflux, voice disorders, cough, anything else that you'd want either the med student the referring physician or the general otolaryngologist to know about any of those issues? You know, I mean, I think it may just make sense to kind of work in a logical fashion from top to bottom. I mean, with the nasal thing, I try to not only kind of localize where they have the symptoms, but also to kind of try to correlate their symptoms. I'll ask them, I mean, do you only cough when your nose is running? When do you cough? You know, is it just the first thing in the morning in like a dry climate, let's say like Denver, where everything's 
dry and it just it takes a little bit of time just to clear that mucus out. But I, I try to correlate their symptoms. And if if I'm convinced that it seems like it correlates, then you try to hit their their nasal symptoms. I mean, it makes sense, you know. And I mean, obviously, I, at least. As a as a you know specialist, most people are already on you know like Flonase and nasal rinses and things of like that nature already, but they still have not you know continue to have you know runny nose and cough related to that. I will also I'll try doing like Atrovent nasal spray, just because you know it kind of addresses the the kind of the the mucus glands themselves directly, whatever the cause of that is. And if most of those people, they will say, yeah, my nose is almost too dry now. And they still are coughing um, after you've treated the presumed uh, nasal source, then you can assume that it's likely not the nose at that point. So it's just another kind of means to, to work that out. You did mention the morning throat clearing in a dry environment like Denver. And if I recall, the last time I was at your house, there were humidifiers in almost every room and your wife was complaining about your morning throat clearing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is funny. I mean, you, you see this all the time and you hear patients frequently say, oh yeah, when I went to you know Kansas where it was more humid or when I went to Florida, my cough was totally gone. And I mean, it's just, it's the reality of it that, you know, when you're you know, sleeping, especially in a dry climate, you're not doing your normal routine. You're not like drinking water. You're not blowing your nose. You're not like, you know, swallowing and doing all the normal stuff that you do. And for, you know, let's say eight hours, you know, a lot of people, you even have your mouth open. So it just kind of further complicates things by drying things out. And so the reality of it is, is it takes a little while in the morning, you got to get your coffee in, take your shower, you know, and uh, blow your nose, whatever. And then a lot of times that will all clear up, you know, and I kind of just tell if patients really only have symptoms, like the first hour or two of the day, I kind of just attribute it to being a human being. So, I mean, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but I mean, you do see it pretty commonly in this environment. So. Yeah. And a lot of times they, they come in with a lot of anxiety because they're concerned that they have cancer, right? They've got this Absolutely. sensation in their throat. They've never had it before. They don't know where it's coming from. And they're petrified that they've got yeah. something really dangerous going on. And, and I've found it's important to ask them what their goals for the visit are, right? Absolutely. Like, do you want me to make this go away? Or do you want me to just tell you that this isn't cancer and you're totally fine with that? And very commonly, the latter is what they're looking for. They just, listen, doc, this is not a big deal. I, I just want to make sure that this is not cancer. And then you look, you get a good look down there with a with a laryngoscope and you, you, you know, you, you make them very satisfied. You are a hundred percent correct. It is. It's so funny. I mean, you can even have like these patients who have just the most dysphonic voice. I mean, they got that, Hey, how are you? And if you basically just reassure them, it's not cancer. I'm like, does your voice bother you? And they're like, absolutely not. I'm just happy I don't have cancer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They sound like Red Fox, but that's their normal <laughs> because they've always spoken like that. And like, you know, for a lot of our right. patients, it's just their habit because that's, that's just how they speak. And sometimes they'll come in with a parent and the parent sounds that way. So they yep. speak that way because that's how they learn to talk because they, they, you know, you learn to talk by mimicking those around you. That's right. So that one thing right. that I just want to mention before we move on is, is, post-nasal drip and, and how it ends up getting thought of as a cause of cough. You know, the idea is that it's dripping down to the back of your throat and making you cough. But sure. if something drips into your throat, you swallow it. 
And if you don't swallow it, you aspirate it. So the theory that post-nasal drip is actually the cause of cough is that it's dripping down into the back of your throat and then actually making its way into your lungs. And that being said, you know, that's, that's very common and it's normal to some degree for a little bit of your own mucus to make it past the larynx and in, in, into the throat, right? Correct. Am I correct? Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Everything you've said so far, I agree with. But that doesn't make you cough. If you have so much post-nasal drip that you're coughing, you're effectively drowning because you're trying to cough up the stuff that keeps pouring into your lungs, which is actually something that happens to patients after a stroke, right? They lose sensation in their throat. They might have a paralyzed vocal cord. And sometimes that's that's a reason why they might need a tracheostomy. So when that really happens, it's dangerous. But when it it's thought to be the cause, it's just it's just a misunderstanding of the physiology. And actually, the patients that I see that most commonly in are the asthma patients, right? They, they right. When does the cough happen? Well, it happens when they lie down. They cough in their mm-hmm. sleep. And the thought right. is, it's because they're aspirating. But no, that's just, and I actually, I don't understand why, but that's that's when asthma tends to be at its worst. Well, and you were just kind of bringing this up and this is kind of like just a point of clarification with like the nose, how I said, how I'll ask patients, whether they feel it in the nose versus do they feel it in the throat? I will ask them the same thing, the same question related to coughing, either when they're laying down or a lot of times patients will say, yeah, I cough after meals. And, you know, I'll ask them, do you cough while you're eating or like five minutes after you eat? But then if there's like, yeah, it's actually during the meal, I will ask them, do you actually feel like it's going down the wrong pipe and then you cough or does you just feel this irritation? And most of the time patients will just say, no, it's just an irritation, you know, which really I think physiologically is a different process. It just so happens to occur while they're eating. So you see, you see a lot of patients and sometimes you're their third, maybe even the fourth otolaryngologist that they've seen. And I apologize. I did not ask you this in the prep question. So I might be putting you on the spot. So let's say you see a patient and you know that they have muscle tension dysphonia. So you know that they put too much pressure on their, on their vocal cords when they're speaking, right? That, that voice that you were doing with all that superglottic squeeze, and you know there's no way that they're going to be going to voice therapy. They just want a pill. They just want something easy to do that's going to make the sensation go away. There's no way that they're going to do it. But maybe you can give them something to do at home, right? Are there any exercises that you tell the patients that, or any, any habits that you can recommend to them that might improve their symptoms? Well, I mean, the two kind of easiest things and at the risk of being ridiculed by my speech language pathology colleagues, which they do this regularly when they hear me dabbling in speech language pathology. But you know, the the two things I would say is like for chronic cough, I mean the the easiest thing is to sub try to find another behavior to substitute the cough for. And it's it's easier said than done. But like smoking. Exactly. Like smoking is a a perfect example, but, or, you know, like, you know, they, that's why we always talk about like drinking water. It's not the water itself, like the humidification that's 
kind of helping with the cough, but when you're substituting swallowing, which suppresses that cough, you're substituting another behavior and not or less traumatic behavior for that cough. So that's like one thing you can do. So that's why we always talk about drinking water instead of coughing, or you can do kind of like a purse lip exhale where you, you know you kind of breathe out against resistance because that can help to eliminate that cough. Um, so that's kind of like the, the easy take home. Hey, Joe, I'm you live a million miles away and you're not going to do therapy. This is something that you can potentially do at home to kind of help break the cough. And then from a, from a voice standpoint, this is actually probably one of the bigger ones is, you know, patients will, when they start to feel hoarse, they'll feel generally that tightness in their throat just from talking. And there's a few different maneuvers that they can do to kind of alleviate that tension. If they just do alleviate the tension, their, their voice will get better and their throat will feel better too. And that's kind of, um, there's a few things. It's like lip trills and tongue trills where you're kind of making that sound, okay, either with your lips or your tongue, or you could do cup phonation or straw phonation, where you basically blow bubbles in a cup, whether it's on the side of the cup or with a straw. But then once you've started blowing bubbles, you actually turn your voice on. And those are great, kind of like easy to do exercises that will help to kind of uh, like alleviate that tension and kind of improve, kind of uh, improve the amplitude of like the vocal folds and help them to kind of relax and reset. But those are great techniques for cough and voice. I think those couple of tips are really going to help me help a lot of my patients because a lot of times as the as the general otolaryngologist, you know, if they've made it to you, they're 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 really motivated. But right. for me, they're it's more like a nuisance. I just it doesn't bother me that much. But if I can give them a couple of things like that to do, I think I think it'll really be helpful. And as usual, this podcast is all about me. So anything <laughs> that you can tell me to help me is really what I'm looking for. No, but it it makes a big difference. And I, I always like tell the patients, I'm like, whatever you do, if you're doing lip trills or cup phonation, just don't do it around anybody else because they're going to think you're crazy because yeah. it does feel ridiculous doing it, but it does work. So. But I think if you're backstage at like some type of a performance, right, that's what you're going to be seeing. You're going right. to be seeing these these performers doing their vocal warm-ups and they're, right. they sound pretty ridiculous. <laughs> that is true. So, so you said you were, you, you just ran the risk of being ridiculed by your voice therapists. Well, I'm going to set you up for a little more ridicule here because like we said earlier in the podcast, physicians are professional voice users. They use their mm-hmm. voices all day. So what I'm looking for is, is just a simple recommendation for physicians in two circumstances. One is you've got to give a long lecture. And two, you're speaking to patients all day. So, so of those, I'll give you a couple options. Would you recommend uh, a vocal warm-up, gargling with apple cider vinegar, drinking apple cider vinegar, irrigating your sinuses with apple cider vinegar, bathing in apple cider vinegar, or drinking alkaline water, vitamin water, raw water, or hyperoxygenated water? How about none of the above? None of the above. That's okay. <laughs> lemon water. I forgot lemon water. Lemon water. You maybe lemon water. Lemon water that tastes good, and I think it soothes the throat. But yeah, I mean, I mean, the reality of it is, is you know, there's every like imaginable kind of potential treatment kind of for voice related issues, and most of the stuff has 
very little or no data. I mean, you know, you see this all the time now with the whole CBD, you know, with marijuana legalization, CBD, everybody comes in telling me how CBD oil cures every single issue known to man. So that's, that's, I would say that's vitamin water is probably being overtaken by CBD oil, but probably has about as much data behind it as well. So, but in general, I usually say is just common sense goes a long way. If you're a physician, all right, and you're talking all day, then you want to kind of like try to break up your day if you can, all right, to give yourself rest kind of in the middle of the day, whether it's doing hand typing your notes or doing a procedure in the middle of the day at different points. It's not normal to be hoarse at the end of the day. And it's not normal to have your throat feel like it's going to fall off, okay, at the end of the day. Have you seen that? Have I seen a throat fall out? Yes. Just once. And it wasn't pretty, but yeah. (laughs) But I mean, the reality of it is, is that those are kind of like the big clues that you got to do something different. Because I actually have quite a few patients that are physicians at my institution and other institutions. And it's amazing how unaware we physicians are, that we actually use our voice all day. And it is not normal to be hoarse or have your throat be extremely sore at the end of the day. You know, so I kind of usually say is like, other than kind of like, you know, voice rest and just hydration, drinking water, common sense type of things, it goes a long way to kind of be proactive and work with a speech language pathologist who's trained in voice disorders. You know, it's not just your average run-of-the-mill kind of speech-language pathologist because they're, they're kind of like the jack-of-all-trades. But you want to try to find a voice-trained speech-language pathologist and work with them, you know, for an hour, once or twice, just increased awareness of how we produce voice because we don't think about how we produce voice. We just talk. And we talk just the way we learn from our parents and our brothers and siblings and friends, right? But there is actually mechanics to kind of how we produce voice. And if you work with a speech language pathologist just on one or two times, it can make a huge difference between actually having the symptoms go away completely or potentially needing surgery and having downtime for kind of like your practice, which is a, is a tough one for patients or for doctors especially. Great, great. I think that actually dovetails really well into the next podcast episode, which is going to be with Nathan Lentz. He's a PhD in evolutionary biology, and he wrote a book about all of the inefficiencies in the human body. So one is just how inefficient some of our joints are, and we have a mutation that doesn't allow us to produce vitamin C, whereas we used to, but then it developed a mutation and never repaired. And it really dovetails into what you were just talking about, right? Like we, we, we just weren't designed to do this. And we just assume that we can use our voice all day long without really learning how to use it as efficiently as possible. And you said just one or two lessons, one or two sessions with a, with a professional voice. With a vo- so is it a voice coach or a voice therapist? What are we looking for here? Uh, specifically, a speech-language pathologist that works on the voice, you know, and I, I kind of, they're, you know, when you're talking about singing, they're kind of complimentary, like a voice coach versus a speech language pathologist. I usually think of a speech language pathologist, like a physical therapist for the throat versus the, the voice coach is kind of like your batting coach. They're going to kind of work on, you know, kind of certain areas of it, but it's, it's a different set of skills. So. Anything else that you want to talk about today? I think we covered the, the gamut of voice issues. Anything else to add? 
less is more from a, a patient and doctor's standpoint. I just, you know, I kind of joke with patients. It's like the best way to stay healthy is to avoid doctors, you know, cause we put our patients on too many medications. We do too many surgeries and we just, we just need to use more common sense and think through the problems. And if patients aren't responding, then we got to try something a little bit different. Yeah. I think that that brings up a cognitive bias, right? It's, it's hard to admit that, that something that you were doing is, is incorrect. It's painful. It's cognitive. I think that's cognitive dissonance. So we have to have the humility to admit when, uh, when we might've been wrong and change, change gears. Absolutely. All right, Matt, Dr. Matthew Clary, laryngologist. It has been a pleasure. Dr. Block, the pleasure was all mine. Take care. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.